This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I have quite a little hodgepodge of things here we're going to be covering um, here. Um, here, So we're going to be t- talking about special needs trust, and then we're going to be talking about all sorts of um, ways of um, making decisions for a person with a developmental disability or assisting them with decision making if they if they need it and that sort of thing. So this is going to be somewhat of a, a racehorse presentation here. So I'm going to go through this as fast as I can. Okay, I'm going to start off with one of my favorite subjects, which is myself. Okay, which is, and remember, you're talking, you know, you're hearing from an attorney here. But I want to give you a little background about how I got into um, uh, working with persons with disabilities, specifically with folks with developmental disabilities. Uh, so if you see that picture up there, you'll see to the um, right, you'll see. Um, bunch of fellows there. The fellow holding the baby there, that's my grandfather, who um, actually worked at Agnew State Hospital, ran the hog farm and the orchards for about 40 years uh, there. Um, The fellow there uh, sitting, uh, the bald-headed guy up there sitting up, that's my father, and he worked in state hospitals um, here for about 45 years, starting at uh, Agnews Hospital and working in a number of, number of facilities. The fellow there with all the hair, that's actually me. Um, here, I worked as uh, what is called a psych tech for 17 years. I worked at Napa State Hospital, Sonoma State Hospital, that sort of thing. But the other part of that is I spent a lot of my time growing up, uh, which is was really common in the institutions um, here, uh, actually spending a lot of time on the grounds of the state hospital and and i was kind of surprised that wasn't what everybody did but it was very common that that thing those were how things were done uh here by the way as we go through our comments it's not that i'm in favor of the state hospital system uh here it's antiquated it needed to go and that kind of thing but basically, I came through, up through a family of uh, caregivers, and that's how I got involved in this. The picture to the left is um, uh, the clock tower uh, there at Agnew State Hospital, now rubble, probably as it uh, belongs and all that. But but let me step back and put that in, into some sort of a con. Uh, context. You know, when you're talking about community living and that kind of thing, I think that, you know, it, it, it helps if you understand the history of how we got there. And, you know, for many of the people that we serve in the communities, many of the uh, folks that are more challenging, you know, traditionally they were provided for in state hospitals. And when you, when you provided for them in hospitals, it was relatively easy. You, uh, if you need, as far as getting them the things they need and that sort of thing, you put in a requisition order and it was delivered the next day and there you are, right? When you're doing community living, it's a lot more complicated because there is no central supply or that sort of thing. And so really the challenge in many ways um, here is how do we continue to get folks the things that they need and ideally the best quality of life 
um, with the challenges of community of living. Okay, so I just want to set that. You know, I kind of consider myself in many ways the Forrest Gump of uh, deinstitutionalization. It's not like I caused it or that sort of thing. But, you know, I was able to watch my father who worked on a program uh, for folks with mental illness um, here, and this is a little on the prophetic side uh, here, who worked very hard helping to place people in the communities and all of those programs are gone. For mental health, it didn't stick. For developmental disabilities, we have the uh, Lannerman um, uh, Act, which is our system of providing services. And as we talk about this, and this is probably a theme for you over the conference, is that you know, for most folks with developmental disabilities, about the time they turn 18, their services are going to shift from the schools to regional center services under the Lannerman Act. And this is a big adjust adjustment for a lot of folks. And that is really the foundation, that is the centerpiece um, here of delivering services. So with that as a background, let's chug into this. So we're gonna start off with special needs trusts uh, here. Now, I'm an attorney who does, our office does almost nothing but special needs trust and related um, uh, services. So we do trust accountings, we work with trustees, we help set them up, we um, we do all of those different things. Uh, here, I also happen to be the trustee of a pool trust, so I personally am trustee of over 200 beneficiaries um, here, and my job is to work, you know, in those cases to see how we can get folks the things that they need um, uh, here wherever they might be um, here. Um, and so that's what I want to get started talking about. Now, the, the real fact is that for many people with um, disabilities um, here and for many, many with developmental disabilities, many of their services may be based on preservation of public benefits, although that's a complex subject in and of itself. And there's basically two types of public benefits. There are needs-based benefits, things like SSI, Medi-Cal, food stamps, HUD, you know, Section 8 and that kind of thing. And what's common with those programs is that you have to show a need based on disability, um, but you also have to show that you have limited income and resources. Um, the other benefits that often we times we deal with are things like social security disability insurance, uh, childhood disability benefits, and, uh, and Medicare. And what's common with those programs is that you do need to show a need based on disability, but there are no resource limitations. So you could basically be on those programs, win the lottery, and still quite, uh, stay qualified for those programs. The um, so getting back to this, the granddaddy of all the programs um, here is SSI. So SSI is intended to pay for food and shelter and nothing more, you know. And in California up here, for $943.72, you're supposed to be able to pay for your food and shelter in San Francisco, California. Imagine how difficult that is. I mean, it's really um, uh, way below the poverty line and that sort of thing. And oftentimes, um, once again, that's where the special needs trust becomes um, important. 
in order to do this um, here, uh, there's a three-part test, but what we're gonna focus on is the resource test, which basically says, in order to be qualified for SSI, Medi-Cal, and in-home support services in most situations um, here, in most situations, you can't have more than $2,000 um, on the first moment of the first day of the calendar month. So let's go through some basics. So, so keeping that in mind, what the heck is a special needs trust? Well, what Social Security um, uh, says basically who administers the SSI program is that um, a resource is any cash or any other personal property that an individual owns or has the power to convert into cash or is not legally restricted from using for his or her support and maintenance. Okay. And if an SSI recipient is um, does not own the asset and is legally restricted from directing uh, for, from direct access to those funds, those assets um, are not considered a resource for benefit eligibility. Now, if we kind of step back for a minute um, here, you know, as an advocate for persons with disabilities here, our objective should always be to try to enable folks with disabilities to have as much control over their lives, including their assets, as they can. This goes right in the face of that because basically what this is ba basically saying is that um, an SSI recipient, if they can have control of the assets, let's say if they get money from a personal injury settlement or a lot of times the birth injury um, um, cases, if the beneficiary has control of those funds, they're going to lose access to the SSI and the Medi-Cal. And, you know, that is one of the costs of getting into one of these programs. A special needs trust, what it is, it's, it's basically, it's a contract where the trustee has sole and absolute discretion over the assets and the beneficiary has none. When I'm asked to review a special needs trust to determine whether or not it is um, a, a valid special needs trust, what I'm looking at is, is there any possibility that the beneficiary could get their hands on these assets um, here and control them? And if the answer is yes, then it's not a special needs trust and we need to tighten those things down. For the advocates in the room, does anybody like have a problem with that uh, here? Because basically what we're saying is the trustee has absolute discretion and the beneficiary has none. That just kind of goes right and uh, flies in the face of the Lannerman Act and a lot of the civil rights uh, rules and that sort of thing. But that's something we just have to keep in mind as we do this and try to mitigate it as best we can. In essence, what a special needs trust is, it's a form of what's called a spendthrift trust where the trustee has absolute discretion and the beneficiary has none. And I mean none. Okay. Now it doesn't mean that we can't uh, have them give their input and that kind of thing. And I'm going to show you a model in a way that will mitigate it, but it won't eliminate it. 
by directing the assets that would be otherwise intended for an individual into a special needs trust, you're preventing those assets from being counted as an available resource, uh, thus preserving his or her eligibility for benefits. So it's really like a lot of things with disabilities, including developmental disabilities. It's a balancing act um, here between loss of control and securing the services. And I will mention, there are times when the loss of control just aren't, isn't worth it uh, here, and maybe the special needs trust is not the way to go. So with that, you could imagine how important the role of the trustee is when we're talking about doing a special needs trust, okay? Now this is something I'll run through just really quickly. This is kind of the list that we've come up with, with with what the ideal trustee should be able to do, which is be able to always use their discretion in the best interest of the beneficiary, have an understanding of public benefits and keep up with the laws and that kind of thing. And there's a lot of judgments when you're when you're dealing with public benefits. The other thing that I'll mention is that these public benefits, they do change from time to time. They're not static things. And one thing about special needs trusts is that these things can last 50, 60, 70 years or longer, and they have to be able to adjust with whatever might come up. Investments are certainly important when you're dealing with this, um, understanding taxes, keeping really good books. Part of what's going on with the Social Security Administration here in our region is they are reviewing every single expenditure from every special needs trust they can find, and it's really important to keep really good books um, here. Uh, advocacy and prevention of abuse is always important. You know, as, as a board member on the ARC of the California, um, it almost sickens me the amount of uh, cases and issues we deal with um, here with folks that are abused in the community um, and the effort it takes sometimes to get everybody to pull together to make sure that we prevent, we protect our loved ones with developmental disabilities that are living in the community. By the way, Merely moving from large institutions into the community doesn't mean that folks are going to be safe. I mean, there's a lot of dangers out there, and it's something we always have to be aware of. The other part of this is that these trusts last a long time, and we got to make sure that we have a trustee that is going to outlive the beneficiary, and that's always a challenge. Now, I'm going to introduce this real quick um, here, uh, a model that we use. If we were to go back to that list, there is no such thing as the ideal trustee. Even myself, who serves as a trustee um, here, I'm 60, um, uh, 69 years old. If I'm a trustee for a 17-year-old, uh, there's a pretty good chance that if she has a normal lifespan, I'm not going to be serving as her trustee decades and decades from now. So you've got to make sure whatever you're going to do is going to adjust. The way we look at that is if you kind of look at that list and divide it up into spheres, how you do that almost doesn't matter, but the idea is that we're looking for some sort of a checks and balance system, okay? Now, one of the models that we use in our workshops um, here for professionals and clients that we work with here is we have a number of models we suggest, and this is probably one of the most common models, which is to have a trustee who's going to manage the funds. There's all sorts of different trustees out there that we might be able to use uh, here. There's professional um, 
um, uh, private professional fiduciaries, there's corporate trustees and that sort of thing. Their job is to, you know, manage the funds, you know, uh, make sure distributions are done right, keep the records and that kind of thing. They're fiduciaries, okay? With that, to mitigate that, we might, oftentimes we'll have an advisory committee um, here uh, that will often include um, the, the beneficiary. Uh, normally you can't have them as a regular member, but you can certainly have them as an advisory committee, uh, uh, an advisor to the committee, because, well, it's all about them. Um, here, so the trustee is directed by an advisory committee, which gives guidance on distributions, can amend the trust, and this is really important, be able to replace the trustee. There's any number of reasons why that might be important, one of which is, you know, go back to this, a lot of my presentations will start off with this girl named Kathy, and let's imagine Kathy has autism um, here, and let's say the trust goes into administration when, um, let's say her parents pass away when she's 17, that trust could last for 70 years or longer um, here. And the trustee in this case, there may be any number of reasons why uh, the advisory committee, which is usually made up of family and friends and that kind of thing, might want to replace that trustee for any number of reasons. With that, and this is an important player here, it can include a care manager to help assess the needs of the beneficiaries and also make sure that our beneficiary is safe. Now, a lot of times folks will see this as an overlap with the regional center, and I, and I, I don't want to sound in any way like I'm not pro-regional center because I certainly am. But, you know, the fact is with the caseloads that a lot of regional center folks have, you know, you're lucky in some regional centers if, um, uh, if a regional center client is seen by their case manager more than once a year. I mean, it really depends on the situation. So, so with that in mind, what are the limitations here? And here's the thing we have to look at with a special needs trust is all the trustee is, is a fiduciary and nothing more. Um, so the trustee is rarely is the trustee going to be the guardian or the conservator. So the thing about it is that the trustee can authorize payment for a beneficiary, but has no authority to authorize the treatment itself. So for instance, we're often asked to authorize payment for dental care and that kind of thing, which is all fine and dandy. We can authorize the payment but we have no authority whatsoever to authorize um, uh, whether or not the uh, dental care can be done itself. That's not the role of the trustee in most cases. So let's del delve a little deeper here, okay? So part of this is, and this is an ongoing battle um, here across the country, but it's also, there's a lot of activity going on um, in California right now having to do with conservatorships, capacity, define alternatives, and that sort of thing. And if I have a little bit of time, I'll share what insights I have uh, here since I'm on the legislative committee of the ARC of California. There's a lot coming down here. So let's just talk about mental incapacity. 
all persons over 18 are presumed to have capacity to make decisions about their personal financial and medical matters according to the probate code. Now, a lot of the families we deal with and age 18 for their child is kind of a magic time because that's usually when they're looking at getting qualified for benefits, but they're also looking at what kind of decision-making um, authority do I want to do? Should we be looking at a conservatorship? Should we look at supported decision-making? What are we going to do? But the law presumes no matter who you are at age 18, you have cap capacity to make your own decisions, okay? The mere diagnosis of a mental or physical disorder is not enough to establish an unsound mind or a lack of capacity to do a certain act. I'm gonna introduce you um, in a bit to my niece, Erica, um, here who has Down syndrome, but merely because she has Down syndrome, does that mean that she um, is not able to make decisions for herself? And as we're gonna, you know, talk about later. In her case, she certainly can and does make decisions for herself. She just needs a little help. Okay. To establish incapacity, it has to be shown through clear and convincing evidence that the person cannot provide for his or her own personal needs. So that's the basically the standards we're working with. So if you're doing a petition for a conservatorship, and we're we're going to talk about that because it's hard to talk about an uh, alternative unless we go through that um, here. You have to show that the person is unable to make uh, and communicate decisions or understand the appropriate of the consequences uh, of those decisions um, here. And you do that by looking at four mental functions, alertness and attention, information processing, thought processes and ability to modulate mood and effect. So let's do a real quick run through about conservatorships because unless we talk about conservatorships, it's really hard to talk about alternatives. Good place to get started is uh, the history of uh, limited conservatorships. Um, prior law allowed a person with a developmental disability to be conserved with um, uh, there's an error here. It says very little due process. That probably should say no due process. You could actually be conserved. You wouldn't be noticed. Um, I think the whole process cost 50 bucks um, back then. And, mere, and if you had a diagnosis and the word in those days was mental retardation, you automatically um, would get a rubber stamp conservatorship. Decisions were made by professionals and not families. You know, once again, I think that's the whole history and the um, uh, of the Lanterman Act and that kind of thing is moving to decision making from um, large institutions and that sort of thing back to the individual as best we can. A lot of the reform, if you read the old cases, and I have um, here, a lot of the reform was initiated because. California had a pretty healthy practice of um, uh, uh, eugenics here of uh, basically sterilizing folks with developmental disabilities, especially at Sonoma De Developmental Center years and years ago. And in fact, Hitler actually studied um, the eugenics program going on at Sonoma Developmental, well, it was Sonoma State Hospital back then, but it's Sonoma Developmental Center um, here, 
um, and actually used that in a lot of his materials as, say, see, this is what the United States does. What's the big deal? And it is kind of a big deal. So one of the many difficult decisions that families have um, when they have a loved one with, with a disability who, who may have a cognitive impairment or a challenge is whether or not to conserve their child when the child turns 18, because once again, much, much of the decision-making does change at age 18. The ideal is to strike a balance between allowing your child to make choices for themselves and authorizing someone else to make those decisions. And something that we always make clear to folks, um, in our office, whenever we do a conservatorship, we actually run folks through a class um, here, which is online. Um, uh, here, which, by the way, anybody who would like to see that, if you email steve at dalelawfirm.com, I will send you the links to that um, here. But basically, it's a workshop that runs through what are the alternatives before we um, uh, basically take away somebody's civil rights, okay? Um, legal decision-making uh, authority of the parent ends regardless of the circumstances, although we're going to, you know, once again, we're going to, I'm going to go over a few things through the Lanterman Act where it doesn't end um, here, but in a lot of ways, there's a lot of things that do end um, here when the child turns 18. A person is not presumed incompetent merely because they have a diagnosis. So does everybody with a developmental disability um, need a limited conservatorship? Clearly the answer is no. And I have to tell you, there are some practitioners in my field, you'd find this hard to believe, that, um, you know, I heard somebody recently uh, give a presentation which led the audience to believe that if you don't do a conservatorship through this office, your child will die on the operating table um, here and all these terrible things will happen. And in fact, that's actually not true. It's, part of it is it really depends on the individual's functional abilities and needs and the capacity for them to um, care for themselves as a reasonably prudent person. But we should always consider alternatives before we take away somebody's civil rights. So a conservatorship, really, it's a protective proceeding for persons whose developmental disability um, substantially impairs their ability to care for themselves or their property. Okay, and the process through the courts they go through really focuses on that. It's established through basically filing a, a court order. Um, uh, here it takes a petition to the court, usually takes 60 to 90 days for it to process. The conservative must attend unless the doctor certifies he or she cannot attend for medical reasons. It can be filed before the 18th birthday or any time afterwards. Um, in the process um, here, a court investigator is uh, appointed and will interview the proposed conservative. An attorney is uh, appointed for the proposed conservative. In some counties, like Contra Costa County, that's going to be an individual attorney that's appointed to, for them by the court. In some counties, like Solano County or Alameda County, that's going to be the public defender's office um, here. But they are to be represented by counsel. A regional center report is required. Um, a lot of the process here is to um, interview the conservatee and see if the conservatee has any opinions. 
As far as the regional center is concerned, within 30 days after filing the petition, uh, a regional center report is, um, uh, uh, is to be done. It submits the report of its findings and recommendation. It's supposed to provide the court with guidance uh, about the appropriateness of the conservatorship, and it is not binding. Okay, so with that, what are the things you can petition for? And I'm going to go through this quickly since we got started a little bit late. There's basically seven things you can ask for. And the concept was um, here that with the, uh, with the folks who originally wrote this was that uh, we didn't want to give everybody all the rights, but what's supposed to happen is the conservatorship is supposed to be narrowly tailored to what that specific person needs. Okay, this list is going through quite a bit of scrutiny right now, and we can probably expect in the next um, couple of legislative sessions that we're going to see this change coming up. What drove this? Okay, it used to be before HIPAA, I would have a parent come in to me and say, well, I was told I need to do um, uh, one of these conservatorship things. And my question would be back to, um, to him or her, has anybody ever questioned your authority? And, you know, usually would get a, well, no, and go, well, I'm not sure that's where I'd put my legal dollars. What really changed was when HIPAA actually went in um, uh, started uh, being uh, enforced that all of a sudden we started um, getting folks who would, um, uh, in those days in the, the early 2000s, um, we used to have a lot of folks that would go to summer camp and what would happen is they would need to get the records um, and then now they would go to try to get the records for summer camp and the uh, clerk would say, well, we don't, you don't have authority um, here to do this, and then that would kick off another conservatorship. After the enforcement of HIPAA, we saw really quite a rise in conservatorships um, here, and I think they do continue to rise. So let's talk about some of the alternatives here. This is my first introduction to Erica, and I think she makes a really good um, uh, uh, example um, here. She's my niece. She lives in Long Island, New York. Uh, here she has Down, Down syndrome. Um, she gets SSI and Medicaid. She has no experience in actually purchasing um, things, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. She has significant challenges, but with the right assistance, you know, she's fully capable of making her own decisions. So the problem would be, like, for instance, if there was a medical uh, treatment or something that needed to happen, if you just plop in front of her a bunch of materials, she's not going to have any idea what that's all about. If somebody will sit down and explain it to her, she's fully capable of making her own decisions. Um, sometimes we don't like the decisions she makes, but those are her decisions to make. Um, here and so this is probably a good example of somebody who has a challenge and believe me um, it would not be difficult to conserve her but the family here and I'm certainly on board with this felt that taking away her civil rights really wasn't necessary at this point and um, basically they're there to provide those supports so let's go through the hot 
um, topic right now, supportive decision-making. So when a young person with a disability approaches the age of 18, the family is often mistakenly told that they must uh, seek a conservatorship or a guardianship, or they will no longer be able to obtain information or provide guidance and support in the areas of healthcare, education, or services. I can certainly endorse that. I think a lot of folks um, here are told they must get a conservatorship. There's no other alternative. A lot of times that comes from the school. Oddly enough, a lot of times it comes from the regional center. We probably get more referrals from regional center caseworkers than anywhere else. And there's a lot of times where maybe this just isn't the right way to go. But there is this pervasive uh, belief that a conservatorship is the only way to go. And it never has been, and let's hope it never will be. There's a variety of tools commonly used that will allow families to continue to provide for supports for their families. As while some people with disabilities may need assistance with understanding information, researching and weighing options and making decisions, um, the conservatorship is the most restrictive option available to support these issues, and I certainly would endorse that. Families are often unaware of potential complications of conservatorships or that the alternatives are available. So education really is the key, and we need to really be looking at education at all levels, not just at um, um, uh, from the attorneys, but also to make sure that people are getting um, for lack of a better term, fair and balanced information about all the alternatives involved in this so the person with the disability can make the decision and the family could be involved. Um, supported decision-making allows people to maintain guidance and support without relinquishing their legal right um, to make decisions for themselves. So that's one key thing about supported decision-making that in the end, the person with a disability retains those rights. Using supported decision-making, a person with a disability chooses a person or a team or a trust or a trusted people to help understand, make, and communicate their decisions. The person may rely heavily on their supporters when they make the decisions, but they ultimately are in control. It's a flexible process um, here. It's somewhat of an evolving process as we work on this. So it also can be a written statement or a formal contract, and I know that's where a lot of folks are going with this, that's written in plain language so everybody understands what they're doing. Um, the agreement specifies the people who have been chosen as supporters, roles, um, of the supporters and the areas they've been asked to support with. Having a contract can be useful to clarify the roles of the supporters, and it's helpful if the role of the supporters is ever challenged by school staff, medical providers, or other professionals. There's a range of tools available, so it's, it's like everything. There's not one tool. In order to make this work um, here, you probably would be looking at HIPAA releases, healthcare um, uh, uh, healthcare authorities, powers of attorneys, and that sort of thing uh, here to make this work. As far as powers of attorney, um, in many cases where we have a situation, we may have a, a situation where somebody has a really difficult time either communicating or, once again, in Erica's case, we did this, in really understanding um, 
a lot of the information that's being put in front of her. So in that case, you know, in Erica's case, we did a power of attorney that authorized once again, her, her family to be able to have access to her medical records and her, her, uh, so social records and that kind of thing. So they could assist her in trying to put it into language that she would understand. They can ex be extremely broad or they can be very specific. It's relatively easy and inexpensive, a whole lot cheaper than doing a conservatorship. It doesn't give the legal agent access to the principal's assets for their own use um, here, and it terminates upon death. The main disadvantage of a durable power of attorney is it's subject, it can be subject to abuse because the court does not actively supervise the agent. I've had many, many cases that have just blown me away where a power of attorney was done and somehow the agent that was acting for the person with the developmental disability absconded with the funds. And sometimes it's really difficult to um, uh, pick that up until it's too late. So it's really important to choose that correctly. When it comes to medical decisions um, here, an advanced health correct directive really can be the way to go. This is just me. I was a nurse for 17 years, and I know uh, whenever I would get anything other than the CMA healthcare directive or something I was familiar with, it would go up to legal, and God knows where it would end up. So I tend to like to use for my folks the California Medical Association um, advanced care healthcare directive because it's it's very flexible and it's pretty universally accepted without problems. It lets you express your wishes and that sort of thing. I'm going to have to chug through this. The things you can do with this um, here limitations, and these are pretty straightforward here, is that, you know, once again, you can't commit them to a mental hospital. You can't give them ECT. You can't give them a lobotomy or sterilize them, um, authorize an abortion, or you can't kill them, which is probably a good thing. One of the things that comes up um, here is on occasion, we'll get a parent who wants to initiate a conservatorship because they feel like they're being excluded from the regional center process. And in most cases, this is actually wrong, okay? Not all, but in most cases it is. And, you know, if you go through the Lanterman Act, the Lanterman Act basically says over and over and over that family are it's appropriate for family to be involved in the process if it's appropriate we'll talk about what that means in a minute Je family generally have the right to attend so long as it's appropriate when is it not appropriate if the child expresses they do not want their parent to attend it's not appropriate end of game right because the Lanterman Act is all about the person with the disability and if the uh, person with the disability says well you know, I don't want my parents there. I can make my own decision that it's not appropriate that, um, uh, that they be there. Let's say you have that problem because here's the problem. If we conserve everybody who has some sort of a problem with the caseworker so that they are, they have, um, so that they can sit in the IPP, which is really key to a lot of things, then the problem is we probably have a systemic problem within the that regional center. If the rights or interests of a consumer is not properly protected or advanced, 
or advocated, the local area board, and I, reach, I, I understand now, uh, I realize that the area boards have taken, been taken over by the state council, can appoint a person or an agent as an authorized representative. But the other reason that's important is it's really important for the, your state council representative to understand that there's a problem going on because if this is happening to one consumer, it's probably happening to somebody else. Racing through this, and I may run one or two minutes over, but I'll do my best not to go much further. Let's say for medical decisions. Medical decisions are the primary reason that I see people and access to records um, that I see folks um, doing conservatorships. Everything after that is just secondary. Well, under the Lanterman Act itself, if somebody doesn't is not conserved and doesn't have capacity here, the director regional center or the director's designee has the power to make those decisions. So it's not like there's nobody um, in control here, but there is the regional center. Now, this is just me as an independent uh, attorney. I've been you know, working in the Bay Area for 30 years. I've seen regional centers do really well and be very person-centered. I've seen them go the other direction. I've, it's amazing how the leadership of a regional center can change. But, um, you know, for instance, my home um, regional center, which is uh, regional center of the East Bay, I'm perfectly comfortable for my clients having um, the regional center being able to assist in making those decisions if necessary. And once again, there is something going on. It's interestingly enough, it doesn't say in the act that um, it has to be a regional center staff member. Conceivably, they could appoint a family member to make those decisions. I've only seen that twice in my career. So there we go. A couple things real quick. ABLE accounts are really cool things when it comes to um, uh, teaching independence. Um, Erica back there um, uh, here was uh, one of the first New Yorkers to have an ABLE account uh, here because I helped her set it up. It can teach financial literacy. It allows SSI or Medi-Cal recipients to purchase items without interfering uh, with public benefit eligibility. And it presumes that the person with the disability is in control and otherwise um, can be controlled by a parent, agent, or a power of attorney, or a conservatorship. This has been a great tool for Erica. We have been using this as a tool to teach her financial literacy. I have to tell you, when she first got the, the card, she made some astoundingly laughable uh, purchases. But she's on SSI. She'd never made a uh, purchase before. Um, at this point, she's down to making questionable purchases. But as we keep working on this and working on this, she's actually learning how to take a little bit more control of her life. Last thing real men I'll mention real quick is self-determination. And I'm probably going to give this the short shrift real quick because of time, is that you know this goes back to how we get people stuff um, here and the evolution that's going on on, you know, how do we determine what people need and how do we deliver those things? Once again, self-determination is an alternate program that um, is underway right now um, here. And what, it's, what it allows folks to do is take a little bit more control of the uh, funds that are allocated by the regional center and be able to take more personal control of that. So 
last thoughts real quick. Approach should always be an individual approach. Decision-making rights should never be restricted without considering the least restrictive alternative. And you can mix tools. And in fact, um, you know, I teach once a year in Texas uh, here where supported decision-making is in full um, uh, evolution. Um, and um, supported decision-making actually doesn't exclude a conservatorship. You can actually mix that in as well um, here. So there's many things you can work on this. This is an area of development, and we can expect a lot of changes in the near future. Anyway, I know I ran three minutes over, but I want to thank you very much um, here. And uh, if you have any further questions, you can email steve at dalelawfirm.com. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.